We have been going through a Bible series we are referring to as returning to our first love. The goal of this series has been to bring us through the biblical story starting at Genesis and allowing the text of our Bible to inform us as we journey to the book of Revelation. We seek the historical perspective and seek to understand and apply what that tells us about our God. We have discussed the creation in Genesis, noting the covenantal focus in contrast to the cosmological view commonly purported by some of our Christian brethren. Allowing the context of these historical people, God's chosen people, Israel, we note the depravity demonstrated through Adam and Eve's lineage and how that brings us to the flood of Noah's day and why God was angered with that lineage. After the flood, the biblical story focuses on the lineage of Shem, through whom we arrive at Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the forefathers of Israel's story. Again, it is important to know that we are talking about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We read about God raising up a deliverer for his people. This man, Moses, and how God used Moses as a vessel to lead his people out of Egypt into the promised land. We find ourselves in the land of Canaan now in our reading, and Israel is still getting settled here in the book of Joshua and Judges and Ruth, which means conquering the people around them, and unfortunately for them, this also means constantly getting sidetracked and wandering into idolatry. Last week, we detailed the disobedience of Israel in not removing the giants from the land as they had been commanded. And God promises that for their disobedience, the people in the land will now become a snare to them. I listened to a rather insightful sermon by Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones this week on the context of Judges. I have provided a link for you in your bulletin insert as well if you are interested in listening. The context is rather simple and is highlighted in the last couple chapters of Judges or even summed up in the last verse of the book. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. I don't believe that we need much detail on what happens to people when there is no king or law in the land. Again, we would understand what anarchy might look like. So here in the land, you have Israel living carelessly, living stuck in idolatry. And this is the story of where we find ourselves. And in the midst of this idolatry, we come upon a story of courage, love, and grace. A story that will further illustrate the need to be in line with God's way of thinking as the only source of a fulfilled life. This morning, I pray that you will not only learn the historical aspects of God's faithfulness through the story of Ruth, but also that you will be encouraged to allow God's faithfulness to be shown in and through your life as well. As you will see this morning, the goal of this message and the context of Ruth is that faith is a verb and is hard work. To establish context, I share the words of Charles Swindle, a well-noted pastor, author, radio host, among other callings. According to the Talmud, Jewish tradition, the prophet Samuel wrote the book of Ruth. The text itself says nothing of the author, but whoever wrote it was a skilled storyteller. It has been called the most beautiful short story ever written. The final words of the book of Ruth link Ruth with her great-grandson David. So we know that it was written after his anointing. The genealogy at the end of the book shows David's lineage through the days of Judges, acting as a support for his rightful kingship. Solomon is not mentioned, leading some to believe that the book was written before David's ascending to the throne. The book of Ruth is a simple historical account which ends with what we call an atoldolf. Again, this is an ancient way of finishing a genealogical record on a stone tablet. We talked a bit about this when we were going through the book of Genesis. So I might refer you back to our earlier sermons on our podcast and urge you to listen to some of the details in Genesis. Ruth is a story that highlights the fact that 66, out of 66 books in our Bible... 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament, illustrated here at Blue Point Bible Church by our stained glass windows in our sanctuary. 
Forty of the books bear names of people in the Bible. Thirty-eight of them men, two of them women. One of those women is a Gentile who is found in the lineage of not only King David, but also Jesus Christ. So what do you suppose, and what we want to ponder this morning, is what is the purpose of such a writing? The story of the book of Ruth begins at the barley harvest. And the marriage proposal that serves as its happy ending occurs at the beginning of the wheat harvest. As the whole wheat harvest of the Feast of Weeks is covered in Ruth, the themes of harvest make a big importance, both literal, as Ruth and Naomi are poor widows and Boaz is a wealthy landowner, and metaphorical, Ruth becoming a part of the community of believers by placing herself under the Shekinah glory in Boaz as a full convert to God's law, Boaz serving as the Goel, or kinsman redeemer, for his widowed relatives. For Christians, Boaz serves as a type of Christ, as a fulfillment of the role of our spiritual redeemer from death and slavery to sin. And Ruth serves as a type of Israel of God, formed of both the Israelite Naomi and the Gentile Ruth elements. Israelite houses have not yet split in the story that we find ourselves, again noting the context. Therefore, this resurrection motif shows that God's ultimate purpose not only included the scattered nations of Israel, but also the Gentiles of the region around them. Right in line with a proper reading and understanding of the prophet Isaiah's words in Isaiah 49.6. It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light to the nations so that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. In 1 Corinthians 15.20 we read, But in fact Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who had fallen asleep. Pastor Alan Bondar did a great job at the recent conference in Virginia Beach detailing the resurrection body. It was the Israel of the flesh to whom these promises of first fruits and harvest were made, as we see the Apostle Paul detailing in Romans chapter 9. Christ was first of the dead ones of Israel to ascend into the glories of the Father, a promise he further elaborated on in John chapter 14. He would go and make dwelling places in the Father's house, a rather prophetic way of saying he would be the beginning of those who experience the blessings of the new covenant. No longer would Israel die and await the future hope of continuing from this life into the glorious presence of God. Now it would be a reality. As Revelation 14 says, blessed are those who die in the Lord from now on. We get to praise God today in the 21st century as Jews and Gentiles in one body because we know that Christ was the first fruits of Israel's promise. And in AD 70, we know that the dead ones were raised at the destruction of the temple just as the prophets proclaimed would happen. A great passage on this, for example, would be Daniel chapter 12, as well as the entire book of Revelation. Honestly, the parallel between the story of Ruth and the details of the resurrection of the dead are great, and I could go on and on detailing more and more of the resurrection motif. However, I'm going to have to simply urge you to look up and look into some of the verses that I've mentioned in your bulletin this morning. Long story short, the first fruits was the demonstration of the beginning of the promise being fulfilled. In AD 70, when God completely fulfilled his promises to national Israel, this also demonstrated to the Gentiles that God, this is the God who fills, fulfills his promises. And therefore, the promises that include Gentiles coming into fulfillment, as the Apostle Paul says in Romans 15:9 and that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Ruth chapter 1, verse 1 begins like this. Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a certain man, Elimelech, of Bethlehem, Judah, went to live in the land of Moab, he and his wife, Naomi, and his two sons. The odd thing about this is that Elimelech and his family are leaving Bethlehem, which means the house of bread, because there was no bread in the house of bread, and they sought food in the land of Moab, an idolatrous nation. 
Remember, Israel was promised by God that if they were obedient in the land and they stayed in the land, they would be blessed. We see this in Deuteronomy chapter 28. Is this again a demonstration of the lack of faith by God's people, what Elimelech is doing to go to Moab? I believe this story highlights the constant idolatry of Israel, who rather than trusting God's providence, continually doubted God's provision, instead of trusting the one true God who delivered them from Israel, um, I'm sorry, from Egypt, they would rather turn to Moab and seek out provisions from Moab. Very similar to the human trait of trusting our own ways rather than God's. As the proverbial wisdom declares, there is a way which seems right to a man, but the end of it is the way of death. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 12. Moab has its roots as being named after Lot's son or grandson, Moab, who was birthed through the evil schemes of Lot's daughters to preserve their lineage by deceiving their father. We read of this event in Genesis chapter 19, verses 30 through 38. The region of Moab was a wicked people, overtaken by idolatry, and therefore Israel was commanded very clearly by the Lord to be separate. The Israelites, in entering the promised land, didn't even pass through the Moabites, as we see in Judges chapter 11. This was an obedience to the law which was commanded by Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 9 through 11. And we read, Then the Lord said to me, Do not harass Moab, nor provoke them to war, for I will not give you any of their land as a possession, because I have given Ar to the sons of Lot as a possession." The Emim lived there formerly, a people great and numerous and as tall as the Anakim. Like the Anakim, they are regarded as Rephaim, but the Moabites called them Emim. That's just fancy talk talking about the bigger people, the giants of the land. I demonstrated last week that there is no need to understand these giants as anything other than a big group of people who inhabited the land and worshipped idols. Israel was commanded to stay away from these nations in an effort to keep Israel sanctified from idols because the God of Israel is a jealous God. After the conquest of Canaan, the relations of Moab with Israel were mixed. Sometimes there was war, sometimes there was peace. And with the tribe of Benjamin, we see that they end up going to war. And um, one of the the Benjamites assassinates the Moabite king Eglon. And they have this huge debacle at the Ford River, I mean at the Jordan River. So here we have Elimelech taking or failing to trust in the providence of God, and instead doing what he, was esti- what he estimated as a good choice, should remind us of the Garden of Eden, and he actually puts a lot of effort into doing things his way. Consider this. Moab was 50 miles to the east of Bethlehem, and I understand today in the 21st century, 50 miles traveling isn't all that much. However, picture yourself having to travel through a desert with camels and all your luggage and all your belongings to move your entire family. Moab was 50 miles east again. It was, they had to travel through the wilderness of Judea, descend 4,000 feet, 1,300 feet below sea level. Then they had to go around the northern end of the Dead Sea, cross the Jordan River, and ascend 4,000 feet up of Mount Nebo, and they would find themselves in Moab. All of this to enter a land of, full of idolatry. Many times we will go through all kinds of trouble to make things our way, rather than having faith in God and being obedient to his will and his way. This has never and never will work in our favor when we do this. Instead, as I said last week, God will continue to answer you in keeping with your idolatry, and therefore you deter God's blessings in your disobedience. Yes, Scripture remarks that whatever is not done in faith is sin. Go ahead and see Romans chapter 14. Oddly enough, Elimelech means my God is my king, which is a great proclamation. However, this isn't how Elimelech lived. He wandered to Moab in direct disobedience to God. How often do we claim titles and then walk in direct contrast to what the title is saying? I might bring before us the title Christian, to be followers of Jesus Christ. Let us walk worthy. 
As we continue to read in Ruth, and Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with two of her sons, and they took for themselves wives of the women of Moab. The name of one, the name of one was Orpah, and the other name was Ruth. And they dwelt there about ten years. And Naomi's two sons, Machlon and Kilion, and now Ni- uh, had died, and now Naomi has neither husband nor her sons. Talk about a dismal situation. The Jewish Targums note that Naomi's sons died for transgressing the law of Moses in marrying foreign women. I suppose that Elimelech would have died because he, like Moses, failed to trust in the Lord's providence. As we saw in Genesis, as well as throughout Joshua and Judges, God's people are commanded to stay away from the nations around them that were captivated by idolatry. This was commanded so that the people would not be tempted to turn to other gods. This is God having their best interest in mind, knowing their weakness... However, the natural mind constantly rebels against the things of God, even if we know it's good for us. So here we have Naomi, who wisens up, finds herself stuck in a really bad situation. I can only imagine the shame, the feeling of failure, the confusion that she felt. Yet she stands strong. And I could pretty much understand her saying courageously, I'm going back to my God, my people, and my land. Despite the shame I'm going to feel, no matter how hard it's going to be, I'm going to do what is right. This was a rather tricky decision because of all that it would entail. Widows were frowned upon in ancient Israel. Plus, I'm sure the story of her husband's disobedience had already went into the, you know, to the Israelite community. So therefore, they know that Elimelech was disobedient. He led his family into Moab, and now his family is all decimated. His sons have died. His wife is stuck with two Gentile women. And I can only imagine the gossip that would have surrounded her. Not to mention that she has these two Gentile daughter-in-laws, and I know Naomi would have understood how hard it would be for her daughter-in-laws. Therefore, she turns to them and relieves them of their duty to stay by her side. And she says, the word says, And Naomi said to her two daughter-in-laws, Go, return to your mother's house. Let the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead, meaning their husbands, and with me. The Lord grant that you find rest, both of you, in the house of your future husbands. Naomi then kissed them, and they all wept. Initially, both daughters had agreed to go with Naomi. However, After Naomi basically explains the hopelessness of following her, she's too old to remarry, too old to have children, and even if she did have children, would these two women wait for her children to grow up just so they could marry them and bear children for her lineage? She even proceeds to blame God for the hopeless situation they find themselves in. Not to mention, again, these two daughters are Gentile women who will be frowned upon in the land of Judah. But Ruth cleaved to Naomi. The term, the Hebrew term debak means to cleave, to hold firmly to. This is how a husband is called to cleave to his wife. This is how we as Christians are called to cleave to Jesus Christ. And we see here that Ruth cleaves to Naomi. I will not leave you. This is a true gospel moment here. In reflection of what Jesus said about counting the cost after follow, and following him, we see that Orpah most likely realizes that to the natural mind it makes no sense whatsoever to go with Naomi. Instead, she will go back to what she's used to, what she knows best, and so on. But Ruth makes one of the most courageous and beautiful proclamations in the Bible. Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or return to you from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. And I will be buried there. May the Lord do so to me and more, if anything but death departs me from you. Wow. So our story began with noticing the disobedience done by Elimelech and his sons, yet now we're noticing a change in the tide. Naomi is exercising obedience, and now a Gentile woman, who is not even of the people of Israel, is proclaiming her faith in the God of Israel. Glory to God. 
We see here two demonstrations of love. Naomi loved Ruth and Orpah and understood the common logic of the calamitous life that they would have if they journeyed with her back to Judah. Therefore, she's letting them go. Yet Ruth loves Naomi so much, and dare I say, loved the God of Israel so much that she makes such a powerful declaration. It would be this declaration that conquers doubt and hopelessness. Talk about teaching the truth in love. Naomi and Ruth leave and enter into Bethlehem, and at that time of the uh, barley harvest, beginning in chapter 2, we read, Now Naomi had a kinsman of her husband, a man of great wealth, of the family of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth and the Moabite said to Naomi, Please let me go to the field and glean among the ears of the grain after one in whose sight I may find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she departs and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the portion of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. The story keeps getting a little better, a bit better and better. You see what a little bit of obedience will do? You have to imagine, gleaning the fields was a humiliating moment, since it required Ruth to go after the reapers, you know, which was designated for the widows and the foreigners, two groups that were frowned upon in ancient Israelite culture. Yet Ruth loved Naomi so much that she was willing to go out and get food for her, her and her mother-in-law. It's important to think about what Ruth's life would have looked like at this point. Again, she could have went back to Moab. She could have returned back to this wealthy nation, and she could have served their gods and lived under their laws and removed the shame of the reproach of the God of Israel from among her and lived among her own people. Yet here Ruth is. Now Boaz, the owner of the field she happened to be gleaning, who was Naomi's kinsman, meaning he could clear up the shame that has been upon Naomi and Ruth, is asking, who is this woman? Talk about a blessing in disguise. Eventually, Boaz discovered that Ruth was a young woman of great integrity. What happened in Moab, the death of Elimelech, her love of God, her treatment of Naomi, and Boaz decided to protect and make provision for her. Oftentimes, the trials and tribulations of life keep us from taking the time needed to remember the times when we've been blessed abundantly, when we have been protected or provision has been provided for us. Talk about being at wit's end. I can imagine that's where Ruth and Naomi were. It just couldn't get any worse. Then Boaz comes and blesses her with provision. And it says that Ruth turned around and she fell on her face, bowing to the ground and said to him, why have I found favor in your sight that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? It brings me great joy to be able to retell this story. Take a moment this morning to think about those times in your life that you made it through. Maybe somebody helped you or maybe it was just God's providence that showed up alone. Praise God for that when you leave here this morning. Sister Meredith blessed us with the song, Who Am I?, which illustrates this point. Listen to the words that our sister beautifully sung earlier. Who am I that the Lord of all the earth would care to know my name, would care to feel my hurt? Who am I that the bright and morning star would choose to light the way for my ever-wandering heart? Not because of who I am, but because of what you've done. Not because of what I've done, but because of who you are. Again, I can't illustrate it as beautiful as she did in singing it, I know I sure didn't even touch on that. However, do you see the, the power? Do you hear the power in those words? As I prepared and prayed through this message, and for all the mothers whom I reached out to in order to ask some of your burdens, I prayed that so many mothers would come to learn and rest in his grace this day. I can't even begin to imagine the burdens of motherhood. Sometimes I think I can, and it seems rather frightening. The responsibilities of raising up godly children, the anxiety of allowing a child to be their own person, knowing the mistakes they will make, the fear of knowing what is going on in our world, and I imagine I could go on and on about the things that stress out mothers. The story of Ruth not only demonstrates that the obedience to the one true God brings blessings that would never seem possible other than it's God. 
It also demonstrates the gospel of God fulfilling his promises to his people Israel when they walk in obedience. Both national Israel as well as Israel of today go uh, through Jesus Christ. The grace that he brings to foreigners. Those who wandered and knew not God. I'll tell you, I know a bit about that. Boaz responded to Ruth, I've been told all about what you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and your mother in your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. I want to tell you this morning, everyone, and especially you mothers in the building, I pray you will receive this teaching this morning and truly take it to heart. Maybe you find yourself at times thinking everything is hopeless, all is lost, nothing seems to work. Maybe you get anxious, worried, frightened regarding the future. I tell you this morning, God is sovereign. His ways might seem odd to us at times, which mothers must understand. For the life of me, I could not understand why my mother didn't want me to go outside without her permission until that one night I snuck out and guess what? The door locked behind me. She knew that the door locked no matter what. I didn't. She told me not to go outside. What does she know? Hmm. Just as we see friendship and comfort of Boaz toward Ruth, we know that God sees your work as well. Even those times when it seems like nothing's working out and you're working for no reason, nothing's changing, nobody appreciates you, and all that is changing doesn't seem to be working out anyway, God is there. Again, let me repeat that benediction that Boaz gave to Ruth. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Also, let me be very clear this morning. If you do not find yourself in some trying situation, if you do find yourself in some trying situation, living in the valleys of despair rather than the mountaintops of victory, your situation does not determine your worth. Be encouraged. Keep on keeping on. Naomi understood this well. Yes, she had her moments of doubt, wanting to be called bitter, maror, instead of pleasant, Naomi. But now she declares, May he be blessed of the Lord who has not withdrawn his kindness to the living and the dead. Again, Naomi says to her, The man Boaz is our relative. He is one of our closest relatives. You can almost sense her excitement. The shame is going to be removed from us. Naomi recognizes that Boaz could possibly help with further redeeming her from the shame that she has as a widow with no further lineage. Naomi begins to instruct Ruth how she could go about obtaining this redemption, which will require some courage on Ruth's part and benevolence on Boaz's. Ruth goes about the ancient Near Eastern custom of asking this man to be her kinsman redeemer. You can read a little bit about this in Leviticus chapter 25 as well as Deuteronomy chapter 25. And even Jesus speaks a little bit on it in Matthew chapter 22. And she went down to the threshing floor and she did all that her mother-in-law told her to do. Boaz had eaten and drunk and joyfully laid down at the end of the heap of corn. Ruth came and uncovered his feet, laid down with him. And at midnight, Boaz awoke and was afraid and saw that a woman laid at his feet. And he said, who are you? Ruth responded, it is I, Ruth, your handmaid. Spread your skirt over your handmaid, for you are a near kinsman. Remember, Ruth was a Moabitess. She had the option to go home and remarry or to remarry someone else in Israel. And I imagine from the story of Ruth that... She was a rather beautiful woman, since it shocked Boaz that she would care to be covered by him as he was old in age. Covering, which meant to have your shame removed, was a big deal in Israel and traces all the way back to the Garden of Eden when God created a covering for Adam and Eve after their sin. When Ruth asked Boaz to spread his skirt over her, what she is asking for him to do is spread his kanaf over her. This could be interpreted to mean wings or covering. In regards to salvation, we see this woven throughout our Bible which surely points to the significance of this story 
and the, regard, and the significance it has in regards to Jesus Christ and our being covered by him. In Psalm chapter 91, verses 1 through 4, we read, He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress. My God, in Him will I trust. Surely He will deliver me out of the snare of the fowler and the rushing troubles. He shall cover thee with the feathers, and under His kanaf, His wings, you shall trust. His truth shall be your shield and your buckle. The prophets continually speak of the Lord God of Israel who covers his people with his kanaf, which was demonstrated to his people Israel by the law of Moses. In the law, Israel was to make a prayer shawl, a talis, which would have four fringes of kanafs. Again, you read this in Numbers 15. This is what Boaz would have covered her with. This covering would symbolize the restoration and the faithfulness of God's grace. As we follow the story of Ruth, we learn that Boaz goes up to the gate, a sort of ancient court, and found one who was a closer relative of Naomi's. Therefore, one who had the first right in this matter. When the man learns that he must buy the property and take this Moabitess wife and raise up a lineage for Elimelech, he says, I cannot redeem it myself because I will jeopardize my own inheritance. Redeem it for yourself. You may have the right of redemption. I can't redeem it. You see, the kinsman redeemer, or the goel, redeeming the land would, in, would involve uh, him buying, spending money, drawing away from his own estate to buy the land acquired. And the land that he buys would not belong to him, but the son he should have by Ruth who would be in the eyes of the law, the son of Mechlon. It would therefore be like mortgaging one's own estate and doing so for the benefit of another. Josephus and the Targum explain it by saying that, he, that this man refused because he already had a wife and feared the discord that might arise. Also, the kinsman redeemer had, to, had a lot of work ahead of him. He was responsible for driving off the squatters who illegally occupy the land. As we read, we come to the story of Boaz and we see that he establishes a witness. The fact that he is willing to be the kinsman redeemer for Ruth. As he says, Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Mahlon, I have brought to, my, brought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Consider that grace that Boaz has. It is important to see Boaz as a type of Christ who redeemed both his people Israel we see this in Boaz raising up a child from Mahlon, removing the shame from Naomi and Mahlon, as well as welcoming Ruth into his home, which demonstrates that Christ, what Christ would be doing as a light to the Gentiles. Ultimately, without this amazing story, the courage and faithfulness of Naomi to return home, the, faithless, the faith and selflessness demonstrated by Ruth in going with Naomi, the kindness and graciousness shown by Boaz, Israel would not have had the blessing of the kingdom they had under King David who is soon to come in our narrative, or even more amazing is that they would not have the Messiah, Jesus Christ. He wouldn't have been born. He is found in this lineage. Simply put, even the lineage of Jesus Christ shows grace and how things are never what they, are, what they may seem. To conclude my message this morning, I want to magnify Christ and the work he accomplished and continues to accomplish. Originally, God chose the nation and bloodline of a national people, Israel, to be his people. These people were given the law of Moses, which included commands to be obedient, land promises that would happen if they were obedient, and advice on how to deal with such problems as a loss of lineage, which never was seen as a curse in ancient Israel. The kinsman redeemer would ensure that the lineage was preserved and that those and that these who may be cut off without the kinsman redeemer may have a place in the land. We have, come to, we have to come to understand our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the true land rest that Israel longed for. They had natural promises pointing to spiritual fulfillment, as 2 Corinthians chapters 3-5 through 5 make very clear, that the glory of the new covenant far transcends the glory of the old. 
Christ's ministry was to excel Moses, to be more glorified. Christ came as the true kinsman redeemer of God's people. Just as Boaz fulfilled the obligation to his people, so did Christ by fulfilling the prophecies regarding the time of the Messiah. Again, the true kinsman redeemer. Also, Christ called those who were once not a people, just like Ruth, the Gentiles who were in the world without God, without hope, to come to salvation in his name. In times past, God overlooked ignorance and the lack of knowledge. However, Jesus Christ came to accomplish a work and paid a hefty price to redeem us. As sinners who can do no good, constantly looking our own ways, methods, trusts, thoughts, goals, desires, in line with idolatry, we find ourselves in line with Elimelech, trusting Moab for bread over the providence of God. How often we'll go to the idolatrous nations than just to simply stay in the house of bread and wait for the Lord to provide exactly what this is called to provide. Thankfully, by grace, our God provided Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ not only fulfills every kinsman, everything a kinsman redeemer would, he is also the foundation of our faith. He is what calls us to worship God in a spirit of truth and in a spirit of true spirituality. It is his words and teachings alone which are able to provide the foundation of a fulfilling life. I've provided verses in your Bible that show Jesus as a kinsman redeemer. Matthew chapter 9, verse 20. Matthew chapter 14, verse 36. Mark chapter 6, verse 56, as well as Luke chapter 8, verse 44. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever should believe in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Jesus himself told us, in the world you will have tribulation. We know trials and tribulations all too well. And many times we seek out every option known to man to remove the shame, misery, depression, doubt, fear, and all those negative emotions, yet we fail in seeking the only one thing that truly can, obedience and faith. Let us not be the Elimelechs of our society who don't understand God's will. His way seems not to be working for them and therefore find ourselves and our loved ones in bad situations or even in death. But let us be the Ruths and Naomi's of our generation who saw things were bad and being obedient to God didn't seem to make any sense to them it actually seemed as though it might make things worse yet they had faith mothers are the bearers of the future I know some things in our society seem a bit dismal and this may lead to anxiety for our mothers and make them very worried but not only to our mothers but to each and every one of us I say be encouraged by the faithful story of Naomi and Ruth God is at work he simply demands our obedience One commentator noted, It is fashionable today for people to try and trace their ancestral ties, hoping to find something significant in their lineage. The genealogy of Jesus reveals some shocking surprises, but one particular discovery was a spectacular rose that grew in the desert. That that rose is Ruth the Moabitess. Illustrating the fact that God chooses whom he chooses, how he chooses to accomplish his purposes. Sometimes it doesn't make any sense at all. God says that he will choose the foolish things to confound the wise. I have the privilege of standing here before you all, exalting Jesus Christ and telling this beautiful message of Ruth, celebrating the mothers amongst us, all because of roses that grow from concrete. God makes the impossible possible. If I may share a story about my own life and a rose that grew from the concrete in my own life, I would tell about my mom. I would tell about the fact that my mom had faith when things seemed dismal. My mom had the courage to say, I'm going to make a change in my life. When her children were taken away and she seemed that she was at the lowest part of low, being low. Something. I call it faith. 
gave her that opportunity to move forward and say, I'm going to make a change. And I know it doesn't make any sense that 20 years addicted to crack, that I'm not going to be able to make a change, but I am. And she did exactly that. And she prayed for me. Another dismal situation. Her son in prison. Doesn't want to hear anything from anybody. Prideful. Stubborn as anything. Yet she prayed. Her and my grandmother prayed day in and day out that something would change. And here I am. Talk about roses that grew from concrete. So if you find yourself in a situation that doesn't seem to make any sense whatsoever and to every natural inclination you have it seems like things are just about to get worse and worse and there's no way to pull yourself up out of that hole I ask that you use the story of Ruth as a good reminder and I'll make it very simple I'm going to end with this when everything seems bad and everything seems like it makes no sense there's a simple principle in the midst of all of it but God I would imagine That would be the encouragement Naomi would give us. She would say, when you find yourself, it makes no sense. You find yourself in Moab with two Gentile daughters, shame, and just complete embarrassment and shame following you. And it seems like things are just about to get much more worse. But God, join me in prayer this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord God for you being our true kinsman redeemer and this amazing message that you have kept in your word, Lord, that just shows us how you've unified Jew and Gentile, have your pur- how your purposes, Lord God, transcend ours each and every time. And that in and through you, we can have faith that you will accomplish your purposes and that everything will work out according to your will. Lord, if we would just put this simple thing before us that you've said in your word in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, Lord, that if you seek first my kingdom and my righteousness, all things will be added. Lord, remind us of of us, remind us of that daily. And give us that drive, like Naomi and Ruth, to follow you in obedience. We pray in the glorious and mighty name of Jesus Christ.